Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Gabrielle Hako, and I am here with my BFF, IFB cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. I want to say to you, Sadie, happy Valentine's Day. Well, happy Valentine's Day to you too, Gabby. I don't believe in Valentine's Day being just for people that you are romantic with. I think it's for everybody that you love. So I wanted to say happy Valentine's to you and happy Valentine's to all of our wonderful listeners. Yes, 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 yes. That is a wonderful sentiment. I was wondering, do you have plans? I know that uh, it was your birthday just a few days ago. So does birthday, Valentine's Day, do those things kind of get lumped together? They do, but it's because I want them to be lumped together. It's not because my husband doesn't want to buy two presents or anything like that. (laughs) I personally, I just, I'm not much of a holiday person to begin with. And I really just dislike Valentine's Day because... I feel like someone is telling me, you must be romantic on this specific day. And that really irks me because I just, I'm like, well, you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) Don't tell me to love my husband. So I've never really been about Valentine's Day. And then with my birthday being right before, before the pandemic, before the baby and all that, if my husband and I wanted to get reservations at a nice restaurant, we could just go on my birthday 
and not have to deal with the huge rush on Valentine's Day and probably get a free dessert because it's my birthday. Mm. So it was that was a big bonus. So all that to say, of my own choice, we just celebrate my birthday for like a week and then we buy each other discount candy on February 15th. Well, that's sweet. Literally, it's sweet because oh, discounted candy. You I know, see what you did there. Sugar, yeah. I, I've been seeing commercials for those Reese's chocolate butter or chocolate peanut butter hearts, and they look so good. But I know that I can get them for like fifty percent off if I can just wait another week. This is true. Uh, unfortunately for me, I live a mostly sugar-free lifestyle, so I don't eat a lot of candy. But usually, my mom will send me a box of candy hearts, which is very nice. That's very adorable. Yeah. My parents usually send me candy or a card for Valentine's Day too. When we were growing up, my parents always got us candy and cards on Valentine's Day. And I'll do the same for Chuck as soon as she's old enough to know the difference between what's a holiday and what's not. I'm trying to see how long I can go without giving her sugar. <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to be that parent who won't give her sugar because I think it's healthier to present sweet things as a part of this is one thing among many things that you eat and demystify it. I'll absolutely give her sweet things eventually. But my theory is the longer I hold out, the less appetite she'll have for it when she's older. And then she'll be able to maintain a good balance better. That's smart. A lot of those candies are just going to be a choking hazard for somebody as young as her. Anyway. Yeah, hard candy and gummies are a no-go for a little bit. I might give her some chocolate on Valentine's Day. I don't know. Yeah. I look forward to when she can enjoy candy. She'll have a cake on her birthday or around her birthday whenever we celebrate it. Yeah, that'll be sweet. We got to we gotta get into today's episode. So last really? year, <laughs> we, we can just talk about your baby for uh, two hours. People will listen to that. On Valentine's Day, we talked about the Valentine's Day banquet last year, which was fun. I just want to say that episode last year feels like we recorded it about a month ago, and it also feels like we recorded it about 10 years ago. This is the shortest, <laughs> longest year ever. Oh, I absolutely agree. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but in that episode, we focused heavily on what married couples do on Valentine's Day. And today, we are also talking about what married couples are going to be doing on Valentine's Day uh, in the world of Fundy. <laughs> I think that's probably just because there's not much to talk about for what single people in the IFB do on Valentine's Day. I think they just... I mean, in my experience, we just sat around and talked about how much we wanted to get married. That sounds like what I'm going to be doing on Valentine's Day. Yeah, but you can drink about it. <laughs> That's true. And I suppose if the single people were going to, they'd be like praying, you know, for God to send them a godly spouse, uh, a good and godly spouse. Yeah. Or they're sitting in the drool pool with somebody. Just noses centimeters apart. <laughs> But no, but but in reality, what what are we here to talk about? We're talking about we're talking about doing the dirty. We're here to talk about what sex education actually looks like in fundydom. So yeah, yeah, through the lens of one particular book, one particular book. Yeah. So th the title of this book is "Intended for Pleasure: Sex Technique and Sexual Fulfillment in Christian Marriage" by Doctor Ed Wheat, M.D., and Gay Wheat, who I presume is his wife. Yes. And the cover of the book states over one million copies sold. That seems like a lot. That's a lot of copies, man. The bestseller, New York Times list, man. It does it kind of blow your mind how many books are like a million copies sold and, and then you have to think about where are all of these books 
like physically. Does that mean that one in 300 Americans has this book in their house? (laughs) Maybe. That's actually terrifying to think about. That's a little scary. I do want to stress before we even get started, this is the best of what fundamentalism has to offer when it comes to sex manuals to the extent that this book does not use King James Version for the Bible verses. I think it uses NIV. And the fundamentalists still accept it. That is how much it stands out above the rest of the books available to fundies. Wow. That's that's nuts. So no King James and they still accept it. Yeah, that that's like is like a huge deal. Like how how exceptional this book is is um considered to be. I was just pulling up the PDF. Um no, there's some from King James, some from the New Testament in Modern English version, which I've never heard of, some from NIV and some from NKJV. Wow. Okay, well so it must be the cream of the crop because this is the book that Jim Bob gave to Josh Duggar before he got married to Anna. Yes, that's correct. There were also um if you look at the the wedding episode of however many kids and counting it was at the time, I think it was 17 kids and counting, um, you see Josh and Anna listening to cassette tapes together on the way to the hotel on their wedding night. I'm fairly sure that because this was the printed book that Jim Bob gave to them, it was probably also the cassette tapes from Dr. Ed and Gay Wheat. Uh, mm. I do want to say this episode is not for kids. <laughs> um Not that any of our episodes are. We're probably going to keep it PG-13-ish. But if you do tend to listen with kids in the car, use your discretion on this episode. It's not going to be particularly safe for work. Yes, this episode contains adult content. So before we get into that, uh, the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast. It is the podcast about my co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our mission to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there's several things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden podcast, uh, where you'll find extended and uncensored versions of our episodes, including this one. Uh, you can go and join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. That's where all the fans of the Leaving Eden podcast hang out. We also have a subreddit, same name, reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus once again the best thing that you can do to support this show is to recommend it to your friends your family your co-workers anybody who you think would like it well we should let our patrons know that as a special valentine we're going to have a patron exclusive episode this week about the oh, wow. ifb approved sex playlist which we have previously <laughs> referenced uh we're also going to talk about so it's not too boring we're going to talk about our trip to see my favorite band which is absolutely not ifb approved no it's very satanic it it was a satanic concert that we went to it was a good time but yeah i want to thank our faith promise mission tier patrons uh you guys are the greatest we're gonna have a a zoom chat with you guys sometime this month it'll be super fun Uh, but there's a lot of them now we have dd keppel oh new one eleanor donahue emery fairlosser as always hope norum jessica tambo 
Kater Wee, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan. Oh, here's a new one. Uh, Mary Martin. You know what that reminds me of? When I find myself in times of trouble, Mary Martin comes to me. <laughs> Join our Faith Promise Missions tier patron to to get a customized song, song about you on air. Yeah. Uh, who else do we have? We have Morgan Alicia. Thank you, Morgan Alicia. We have Rachel uh, Bernadowitz, Rebecca Hoyt, Sarah Reese, Shane Horton, and as always, our favorite, one of our favorites. I can't say our favorite because, you know, it's like having children. Which one of your children is your favorite? Well, uh, Chuck we have, is my favorite child. Of course, but you only have one child. That's true. I guess you also have Harry. But last and certainly not least is Wes the Cowboy. We love you, Wes the Cowboy. I did want to call out Emery because uh, they got me onto Dordle. It's like Wordle, but you guess two words at a time. Really? Yeah. Well, so so Emery got me onto Nerdle, which is where you guess a math equation, which I didn't like as well, but through Nerdle, I found Dordle, um, which is two words at a time, and I've really been enjoying that. Well, hey, that's super fun. We love having a, an awesome community where we can really feel like we are in a community with our with our listeners. Yeah, and, and these people, and, yeah. people provide me with non cult specific, lots of cult specific content, which I enjoy and appreciate, but also non cult specific distraction content, which is just great. Oh yeah, speaking of our community, I made a, pay, a post in the Facebook group um, uh, a few days ago, and I pinned it to the top of the Facebook group. But we're going to be doing a Q and A episode pretty soon. I pinned it in the top of the Facebook group. So if you join the Facebook group and you go to that group, you can just write questions that you want to have us answer on air in the the replies to that. And we're probably going to take a bunch of our uh, Q&A questions from that. So that'll be really great. Yeah, you can also call into the show. There's a link at the bottom of the show notes where you can get to our Anchor voicemail box if you'd like to have your question read by your own voice on our show. I think that would be super cool. Yeah, and we got a couple of those. Uh, my last thing is, if you haven't heard it yet, go check out my interview on Please Hate This. Uh, it's a newer podcast that I, I did an interview with Cat, the host. They were so much fun. We had a great time talking and um, just kind of shooting the shit about evangelical stuff. It's a very queer podcast. We talked about like growing up queer in the evangelical church and what that was like. They were super great. I feel like they've been my friend forever, even though I had literally never met them before doing the interview. So by all means, go check that out. I had a really fun time doing that. You love to hear it. Okay, now we can get into the episode. So, Sadie. Yes. I remember, yeah, I seem to remember you telling me that, uh, and this is like in a very early episode, you told me this, that information about sex was strictly off limits until you were within 90 days of your wedding day. Right. You can hear, so this was within my Hiles branch of the IFB. Other places were even more intense about this. A good example is that you can hear Anna Duggar reference that she did not know, have any information about how sex works up until three weeks before her wedding to the disgusting sex pest that she married. Also, this... Like not knowing anything about sex before your wedding. This is one place out of several that I really identified with Bridgerton. So this is that, that's like the most extreme version. So what's like what's the regular fundy version though? Is that like you pick up bits and pieces of knowledge just kind of from around, but then you sort of put it together? Right. the The regular fundy version of sex ed. It's it's gonna be everybody gets something a little different because some people's parents 
have some kind of birds and bees talk with them. Some parents don't. I think the average Fundy kid would have pieces, but not the whole picture. Okay, let's imagine a puzzle. So let's say we're working on a puzzle and the puzzle is a picture of a hot air balloon over a river at sunset. You might have enough pieces to see that there's a sunset over a river, but then be completely surprised to find out that there was a hot air balloon involved because you just didn't have those pieces for the puzzle. So Fundy Kids would know that sex involves two people. They know that it generally involves nudity somehow, and they've been told that dancing looks like sex or maybe want, makes you want to have sex. So maybe they've made some assumptions based off of that, but that assumption could be a good or bad assumption, depending on what kind of dancing they're thinking of, right? Because if dancing to them means clogging or the Macarena, <laughs> maybe their guess isn't as good as the kid who's watching people tango. And then maybe there's another kid who's like, seeing people twerk and has a better assumption than the kid who's watching people tango. I have heard a story um, from a very good source about an IFB couple who um, they got married. <laughs> they go to the hotel. It's their wedding night. And they had they kind of had all of the information up to the point where penetration happens, but then they didn't know what was supposed to happen after that. Specifically, they didn't understand that there was like motion involved. <laughs> They thought you were just supposed to kind of put it in and then wait for something good to happen. So they were they were pretty confused for a while, apparently. You mean soaking? Uh, you know about soaking? They accidentally invented soaking. You know, I've accidentally invented a lot of things, but at least that's not one of them. So that, I think that's a really good illustration of what I mean by you might have a lot of the pieces to the puzzle, but you might be missing some really crucial pieces. <laughs> I'm screaming. Oh, I'm sorry. breathe. I'm sorry. Um, do you, while you recover, do you want me to tell you an old fundy sex joke? Yes. Okay. Please. <laughs> so... Um, there was a bride and this is this is an old like fundy joke. There was a bride and groom who went off on their honeymoon and a couple of hours after they left the wedding ceremony, the bride calls her mother and the bride is just in tears. And the bride says, mom, I did exactly what you told me to do, but it's not working. And now my husband's mad at me. And the mom says, well, what exactly did you do? The bride said, Mom, you told me to take what he loves most and put it where I use the bathroom, but I put his bowling ball in the toilet and nothing's happening. <laughs> so the whole idea is that if you keep the details of sex away from unmarried people, they won't do the sex because if they don't know how to do it, they won't do it. And this is effective if you really keep all the details away from them. Like this is effective if you do this as effect like as intensely as Anna Duggar's parents did, right? Like this is Anna Duggar would not have been able to go have sex with somebody because she literally had no clue like what that was. Most parents are not that strict and most par parents aren't able to keep information away from their kids to that extent. No, they wouldn't be able to with it. Well, you were talking about when you were, were you at Hiles Anderson or Pensacola? You had a roommate. Like there was like a designated roommate. So that it's the same, the same person was that girl at both Hiles Anderson and Pensacola with me. I was her roommate at only one of those places. 
but but she was the one who like explained things to people. She was the one who was filling in the puzzle pieces that were missing for some of these fundy girls. Do you know where she got the information? Did or did she just have like she was a med student? I think before Hiles oh. Anderson, or maybe she did what Heather did and took like early EMS classes in high school. She had medical education. I'm not sure exactly where she got it. Oh, okay. So she knows all how all this works. Okay, that makes sense. But that's that's kind of what happens because there are all these kids of different levels in the same church. Some kids might go to public school or some kids, their parents gave them a more extensive talk. So if you're an IFB kid who wants to know if you aren't satisfied with being kept in the dark... If your encyclopedia is heavily censored, you your only option you, and your internet obviously is heavily filtered. Your option is to ask around, ask your friends, and it is risky because if you ask the wrong person and they snitch on you, you're going to get in trouble. On the other hand, if you're an IFB kid who's a rule follower and in your mind you're parroting back what's been told to you, like I don't need to know this until I'm almost ready to get married. This information is being kept away from me for my own protection. If you don't seek out information on purpose, then you're really not going to know very much. People know. Okay, well, if you want to find out you you go and you talk to liana or, or and then you just hope that like liana's information is good because what if she's got 99 out of 100 puzzle pieces but what if she's missing something important so it's a very bad game of great like um telephone yeah that's it's like legitimately dangerous the, it Legit- is because this is how this is so you hear about in like regular public school people saying, oh, you know, I don't need to use a condom because my boyfriend told me that if I drank a Mountain Dew after we had sex or if I jumped up and down on the bed or if I took a really cold shower or whatever, that it's impossible to get pregnant. Like, the, And you get that spread through and then you see a, a lot of unplanned pregnancies happen. This is like a hyper intense version of that phenomenon that ha- happens out in the real world. So it is dangerous. As like a normie kid, as, as like a no- you still don't want your parents to know that you're trying to find out about sex, right? Because like you're you're 12, you're 13, and it's weird and gross, but you're also like into it. And so you're trying to figure out what, like why you see why you feel funny when you see the hot girl in the beer commercial, but you're not like actively getting in trouble for it. It's just like embarrassing. Yeah, but at that age, aren't you taking sex ed in school? Like I thought public schools just sat you down when you were like sixth or seventh grade and just told you everything. Yeah, they sat you down for it, but you like were just like... You, you know, you're at that age. This is so weird. I'm in this class. My teacher is taught like, and all my friends are like everyone that I know is around me. And I'm learning about this thing that's like super like. So it's like mega cringe. Yeah. In, in like fifth, sixth grade, also like, you know, seventh, eighth grade. It was like, you know, the point where you treat it like a joke. So like your it's your science teacher who's going to be the one who's teaching it to you. And so your science teacher would get up and like tell you like a lot of the information and or, you know, like have you watch a video or whatever. But then they would go and they would say, I have a question box here and you can submit an anonymous question and I'll answer in front of everybody. I've seen teachers on TikTok talking about like joke questions that they get doing that. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So like the thing that we would do when we were kids is we would try to write joke questions that would be the most embarrassing when you read them out loud, but also like low key possible to be true. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to find that line where it's like still really funny, but it's not, oh, this is impossible. They're just going to throw that one out. 
And so then the other thing that you do is you you sign a different kid's name to your question. You know what I'm saying? So like you'd write, I don't know, like, is it a problem if my cum is green and then sign Steven at the bottom? Because, you know, Steven was the kid in class who you just didn't like and you didn't hang out with. And oh, so that's mean. Just, yeah. <laughs> but like, do you think that still can be kind of useful? Like, could a smart teacher turn that back around on the jokesters and be like, oh, well, you know, different colors of bo bodily fluids happen and it all depends on what you eat. But if you haven't eaten a lot of spinach lately, you might want to go get checked for an infection. Next question. I mean, you could. That would be like, like if the teacher's really composed, I feel like that can still be turned back around in a way that's going to be educational. That would that's like the one where that's like the worst possible outcome. Okay. Like that that's like you That's not what you're going for as a teenager. Okay. No, that's not what you're going for. You know you hit the bullseye. So like say you write a question and the teacher asks whoever's name like and you like you and your friends, you all know whose names each other wrote. So you're like, okay, I'll write Steven, you write Derek, you write Jonathan, and you write uh, like Jamar or something. Like if if the teacher called one of the kids whose names you wrote like to talk with them after class like that was always the goal like <laughs> you know what i'm saying like if if your question got read then you didn't go big enough okay but if you went too big it wasn't gonna get read because it was just like it was clearly a joke yeah but if it didn't get read and they go can we talk after class you like that's hitting the nail on the head that's basically and it was basically like a prank war where you try to prank each other and get each other back for like writing the the question like who got me yesterday you figure out who got you yesterday and <laughs> this is ridiculous yeah well you make a game out of it that's what we would do that's eighth grade man it was a wild know, time i have a lot of thoughts about comprehensive sex ed for high school students i have zero idea on how not to make them treat it like a joke like i have i have so many like very specific thoughts on like this is the best way to do it and this is how you you know raise the next generation with education about consent and this is super important but then when you ask me like well how do you make them not think it's a joke i'm totally lost i got no clue oh it's literally impossible so I was a good kid growing up most of the time. I didn't really seek out information about sex particularly, but I did have access to a lot of books about Christian marriage. And I wasn't, I don't remember reading them specifically to try to find out what is the sex. I was, I was reading them to try to get a handle on what was going to be expected of me as a wife, like outside of just having sex. Like how, what do I need to mentally pre prepare for to be a good IFB wife one day? It's a good thing that I wasn't reading them to try to find out exactly what sex was because I read several of these books and I still had no clue. Everything except for the book that we're actually reviewing in this episode was just so vague. So like, what were they saying? So the Christian marriage books that I was sneakily reading were about a lot of the same stuff we've been talking about. I wasn't reading the advice for husbands part because even when I was breaking the rules, I was still following the rules. I was reading the advice for wives <laughs> And it was a lot of the same stuff we've been talking about recently, like stay skinny, dress the way your husband likes, do your hair the way he likes. If your husband has a thing for redheads, you better dye your hair red, be submissive, don't have a bad attitude, don't complain. Like all of this is the way to have a good marriage. One book I remember had some really interesting tips, though. Oh, God, do I want to know? Yes, <laughs> I think you do, because some of these are pretty <laughs> funny. Oh, man. So I think these are all from the book Romance in Marriage by Bob and Joe Beth Hooker. 
Oh. <laughs> All right. I can't not. Uh, I'm trying not to make these hooker jokes, but I have to. No, I know you have to. <laughs> Sadie. Yes. Are you telling me that you got information about sex from hookers? Yes. Because I feel like they'd be experts. <laughs> I mean, this that joke works on like 14 levels because the hookers also had sex kids. So been busy yeah that 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 joke works in, on a lot of on a lot of levels so, yeah but they were people that you knew yeah they were first baptist members and teachers at hiles anderson so question is it low-key weird and exhibitionist for them to be writing a book of sex tips for their church friends yes i think it is weird but You'd be surprised how much this kind of mild exhibitionism just comes up in the IFB kind of everywhere. You might call it like an exhibitionist kink. You really might. You really, (laughs) Gavi, you really might. You really might even say that the fundies exhibit a lot of common kinks, but then they just make it Jesus-y and pass it off as Christian marriage advice. Just saying. <laughs> so so all of these tips, I want to tell you about three things that I remember being interesting. They all may be from this book. I know I read a book by another different First Baptist Church famous couple, so I can't say for sure if these are all from the Hooker book, but I think they are. So these are like fun date night ideas, like ways to spice up your marriage. The first one I remember was make a drive-in movie night in your garage. So get a projector in your garage, sit in the car, watch a movie, eat popcorn. Obviously, don't run the car. I think this Mm. is actually really cute. That sounds like a great time. So do you want to move on to a couple of the weirder ideas that I gleaned from Christian sex books? Yes, hit me. So here's, here's a fun spice up your marriage idea. Draw your husband a bath, dress up in an Arabian costume, and feed your husband grapes. So the bath is nice, but why grapes? I don't get... I don't know. So does it tell you to get in the bath with him or... No, it's specifically telling the wife not to... It's like like some kind of like Roman emperor servant fantasy thing, I think. Oh, okay. I can see that. But what's like... What's an Arabian costume? Like a a niqab? Like a... No, like like a belly dance outfit. Oh. I don't remember the exact wording. I remember that the Dance of the Seven Veils was mentioned in this thing. It's basically a lot of words to say exoticism and poor quality cultural appropriation, but make it sexy. Yeah, but the fundies don't know what uh, cultural appropriation is. That's a little too advanced for them on the... A little. ...scale of of wokeness. (laughs) So honestly, I'll tell you what I see here. I see this as trying to help IFB wives who have been raised to be extremely modest get used to the idea of dressing sexy for their husbands, like people who are raised in extreme purity culture. I think this is like silly ideas to try to help out with that concept. Well, maybe then there is probably something to it because like if you're if you're uncomfortable in like a situation, it doesn't even have to be like a sexual situation. But like if you're feeling uncomfortable, if you're feeling uneasy or self-conscious, you've got anxiety. Like one of the easiest ways to or like most effective ways to diffuse that is with like humor, with silliness, you know, being ridiculous. So, you know, if you're really nervous, you don't have that intimacy built up yet. You know, you can just be doing stupid stuff with each other so that you'll be comfortable being ridiculous around each other. So, yeah, I think this particular idea is dumb, but I think the concept of silly prompts to help people come out of their shell is definitely not a bad thing. Sexy bath time, but make it racist. (laughs) So the final idea that I want to talk about that I got from IFB marriage books is this. 
God. Make your husband's favorite meal and let him eat it off your stomach. Mm. This just sounds, I love the first half and then it just, the second half is just not for me. This sounds like such a bad idea for several reasons. Is this a plate or no plate? Strongly implied no plate. I, I can see this working. Okay, if his favorite food is sushi, that's a real thing. This would work. But I can't think of any other meal that this would successfully work with, like spaghetti. I get that being messy is the point, but how, like, you need a fork to eat spaghetti, and that sounds scary. Oh, man, no. I'm imagining a, a fundy man, like, slurping spaghetti sauce off of his wife's stomach, you know, like, <laughs> like you would with chocolate syrup. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that is kind of the point. Honestly, I gotta say, I prefer spaghetti sauce to chocolate syrup. This doesn't sound that bad as long as like it isn't like chunky spaghetti sauce. You know, as long as it's like a really like a, a marinara or like a like cream take sauce. the immersion blender to that first, and maybe you'll be okay. <laughs> I get that that like messy food stuff is the thing for some people, and I'm not yucking your yum there, literally. For any Bachelor in Paradise fans, all I got to say is Marissa and Riley. So, you know, if you know, you know, I'm not concerned about that. I'm mostly just concerned about the danger involved when you're talking about like dinner as opposed to like whipped cream or whatever. So this is Fundy World. So like there is a greater than 50% chance that his favorite meal is steak, which is downright dangerous unless you're like placing pre-cut steak in like bite-sized pieces on yourself. Yeah. (laughs) My issue with this is mainly logistical and I don't think that's kink shaming. Because okay, think think about this. So let's say his his favorite food is steak. Is if it's hot, isn't it going to burn your skin? So if you cook a steak, it's still sizzling. Are you going to put a sizzling steak on your stomach and then give him a knife? That doesn't make any sense. But if you cook the steak and then you cut it up and then you put it on your stomach, it, it, it's going to be cold. That's I, true. Either it's hot enough to burn you or it's too cold to eat. I don't see how either one of these is really a good option. Yeah, I, here's here's my take though is that like for a lot of kink or whatever, right? How much of the being into it is like the the preparation for it? Like people are into it, like they have to do all of these logistically difficult things, right? And that's like part of the putting effort into it, and that's one of the things that makes it good. Making things logistically difficult, maybe it's like a feature, not a bug. But I don't think they're this advanced yet. You, you see what I'm saying? I can buy that i am gonna stand firm on my steak being a bad idea thought i agree this is a bad idea you know what the normie alternative to this is what's the normie alternative normie alternative is to like say you're trying to do something nice for your husband do something sexy for your husband so you're gonna be like i'm going to cook you a delicious meal and i'm gonna wear nothing but the apron so that way like if there's grease involved you don't get grease on you you don't get burned that's fun that's sexy. That's nowhere near as likely to send you to the ER as and then get like the doctors asking personal questions like, why is there a steak knife embedded in <laughs> your stomach? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. This is <clears throat> a lot less, a lot less dangerous, a lot less likely to end up in the hospital. Many of these suggestions, it seems like they're just the You remember that Simpsons episode where grandpa teaches Homer how to make the revitalizing tonic. But then like before that, Homer and Marge try this book on tape. Uh, like, isn't it a Paul Harvey book on the tape? 
Yes, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Erotic American. <laughs> yeah, that episode. I can pretend to be the janitor, and you can be the janitor's wife. <laughs> Went to the hotel, they got the supply closet. <laughs> yeah, because, because Mayor Quimby was taking up all the other rooms. <laughs> oh, man. Mayor Quimby. <sighs> so... So here uh, we got to move on. Yeah, to this. I feel okay. But, I think yeah. we've I think we've just like delayed this long enough. Yeah. So people people you knew were getting married in the IFB. Is this the info that they were getting ninety days before their wedding? So the books that we've been talking about so far were marketed toward people who had been married a while. They'd mastered the basics and were trying to move on to bigger and hornier things. The main book that we're reviewing today, Intended for Pleasure, that was a really common thing that might be given to somebody 90 days or less before their wedding when they're finally allowed to know about the sex. I had a few friends who went through like the real IFB wedding thing. And what they told me would happen is basically their fiance would get sent this book or given this book or whatever. So the future husband would read it first and then he'd hand it off to the future wife. Lots of blushing and giggles, but they'd be given strict instructions not to discuss the contents of the book until like a week or less before the wedding. Was this uh, just because it was too much of a risk that they like try some things out a little bit early or? Yeah. If you discuss this like three weeks before the wedding, like let's say you call each other on the phone to have a discussion. Well, what if that leads to an inappropriate phone conversation? And then you're only like 99% virgin when you get married. You got to remember, these are like 22, 23 year old people who have never had sex and they finally have a date and a time at which they're going to get to have sex. It's a bit of a tense time in the young IFB person's life. So you're either just like counting down the minutes because because you're like ready to bust basically or you're like terrified and you're just like what is this thing that's going to happen? Probably, yeah, probably a little bit of both. So then sometime a week-ish before the wedding, they'd be allowed to discuss what they read in the book. But remember, they still have to have a chaperone. So how this would work is maybe you would let the engaged couple go for a walk in the park and the chaperones will follow them far enough that they can see them but not hear them, which that just seems Mm. so complicated and weird to me. But there's still a chaperone there to make sure that they behave. How is this conversation going to go? So for example, um, Intended for Pleasure recommends some things to help with the transition of getting to the hotel room after the wedding, trying to make that less awkward and take the pressure off that transition. So you might be asking your fiance, well, what did you like from the list of ideas from like on on getting to the hotel room? Like, what are your expectations for this? Does your wedding dress have a ton of buttons that you're going to need help with? Those are the questions that you'd be asking as an IFB almost married person in this situation. You'd also be asking, if you're smart, how important is it to you that we actually have sex on the wedding night? Are you okay if that doesn't happen until the next day? Or is that like a really big deal for you? That's the kind Mm. of thing that if if they're smart, they would be discussing in that conversation. Because like if you go full fundy, your you may kiss the bride moment, that's your first kiss, right? Right. So going from first kiss to full sex in like a matter of hours, like that's zero to a hundred very quickly. That's going to be really jarring. Obviously, sex studies aren't really robust in the IFB. I think regular non-fundy statistics is that about half of people actually have sex on their wedding night. I would think that the IFB probably roughly mirrors that. Maybe it's a little higher because there's no alcohol involved at an IFB wedding. But there's also like all the nerves and all the pressure. So 
my educated guess is that it probably is pretty close to the regular people statistic. No, some no alcohol. No alcohol. Oh, that's real. That's very real. Like, so if this is the situation, like I can imagine first night you go in, you fool around a little bit. Maybe you don't go all the way because you're still like literally getting comfortable being like you haven't even been alone with this person with no one else there yeah ever and now you're wow like you've never been in a car alone with them until you drive off the church property after getting married and then you get to the hotel room and you're like in the hotel room together and you're like well it's not only have you never been alone in a room with them you've never been alone in a room with anybody Wow, really Mm. so it's it's uh it's just a lot that's terrifying. And going from that to just being like, like, let's get naked and just like do it. That's that's got to be really difficult. And I can see why, like a lot of people, they like it takes time to get acclimated. Yeah. And I think that that taking time and doing what feels right is the ideal situation. I'm sure that a lot of P- IFB people do have that experience, uh, especially if the IFB man that you picked isn't just a jerk who just expects sex. I don't assume that this is the way that it played out for most women that married into a certain reality TV quiverful family. I do assume that this is the way that it played out for some of the women that married out of a certain reality TV quiverful family, like perhaps someone whose name rhymes with shrill Squidward. You you sent me the ebook of um this book intended for pleasure like a year and a half ago when we first started doing the podcast. I remember reading it because I wanted to know what it said because I was like, oh, let me make fun of this, you know, because that's all I wanted to do was make fun of fundies. I was surprised at a lot of things in this book. Do you want to know why? Why? Because a lot of this book is not terrible. Yeah. It's not that this book is super incredibly great, but I agree with you. It's not terrible. There's a lot of kind of meh advice in here and a lot of pretty okay advice. So I'm excited to see what you pull out for us to, sorry, no pun intended, for us to look at. (laughs) Well, if you're IFB, if you're uh, quiverful, especially, then there's absolutely no pulling out. True that. So let's, (laughs) okay, let's get into this book. Yeah. Okay. So first thing, I want to talk about with this book intended for pleasure is that there are three chapters of Bible verses before we get into it. So like stuff about committing to each other, husband must love the wife, you know, things like that. There's three full chapters of Bible verses before we get into the details. Is is it because if you don't surround the instruction manual with Bible verses, then it makes it borderline pornographic or that. Yeah, that's probably why it, I want to know if this is split up into chapters. Like, is this the first three chapters that are mostly Bible verses? Is it like one's for the husband, one is for the wife and one is for both? No, it's so chapter one is like intended for like it's is like an overview okay. of like what this book is for. And then like there's a bunch of Bible verses in there, which, you know, makes sense. Chapter one, whatever. Chapter two is finding God's design, um, which is like a bunch of, I guess, design principle from Bill Gothard or whatever, I assume, but just like a bunch of uh, Bible verses with that. And then chapter three is choosing to love. So basically all three of these chapters are just tons of Bible verses. It's almost like they just went through every verse in the Bible to find ones relating to love and sex and then just like cram them into three chapters. 
Number one, I think this is for Fundy Street Cred. It's saying, I can quote and interpret all of these Bible verses correctly, and that is my credentials for why you can trust what I have to say. Number two, I noticed in that section, it does reiterate that the husband is the head of the home and the family. It's page 41 and 42 of the PDF that we're using. I think the book is also saying, we're going to write some stuff about sex in here that may seem kind of wild to you fundies, but don't worry, don't freak out. The husband's still in charge. So I think they were maybe trying to reassure people like, don't worry, we're good fundies. It's okay to read this. Also, maybe they just wanted to make sure that people were properly bored and sober from the start so that the scandalous part seems less scandalous. So chapter four is really where we get into it. Chapter four is titled uh, Understanding the Basics. And this is where we get like a sec where it's like a glossary, like proper terminology. We have some medical diagrams of the female reproductive system. Uh, all the parts are labeled, you know, vagina, cervix, ovaries, all of them. They're all in there. Uh, you get a description and a picture of a pap smear, which I guess is very useful because if you're a, a fundy woman, you won't have heard about that before, probably. But it just reminds me that these like these women who are getting this book, they literally don't know how their body works. Yeah, which is unfortunate, but I'm glad somebody's telling them. Yeah, it's important. They'll get cancer. Yeah. I I mean, I was pretty happy about these diagrams because the bladder does not lead to nowhere. (laughs) No. So one thing that jumped out to me, um, you can tell me what you think about this, is how much time they spent talking about the hymen. Like there's two or three whole pages about the hymen in there. So it's to correct any misconceptions that the young fundamentalist person might have. Oh, okay. It's preemptive. Yeah, it's so that some poor fundy man doesn't have his wedding night and then wake up the next morning and be like, you lied to me about being a virgin because you didn't seem to have a lot of pain or you lied to me because you didn't bleed a lot. So they know that they like they know that all of these people have been told wrong because they run in these fundy circles. And so they know the things that are being told to to young men and young women about like purity or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I do not believe that any kind of virginity test is common in the IFB. But I also believe that it does happen, um, which is Mm. always misogynistic, always highly problematic, always abusive. So I feel like this chapter is trying to get out ahead of those myths and protect women. I do have to love that Wheat says um, some AFAB people are born without hymens. To clarify, he says baby girls. I'm correcting his language. He also says that using a tampon will not destroy a hymen. This is one of the things that the book is really correct about, and I I honestly have to appreciate that. Because like having read this book, I hate to say that there is some good advice in here, but the, like there legitimately is some good advice in here, like where they they're like, if the hymen is especially tough, it's a good idea to use a lot of lube, like especially like it also says that like if you're going to go in with your fingers that you've got to f- trim your fingernails first. That is basic stuff. Reasonable, Yeah, but that's like reasonable advice. That is a good idea. <laughs> I guarantee you this is this is the information that Steven Anderson was deeming pornographic. I did have a short quote that I wanted to read from the wedding night section. Oh, go for it. Here's my quote. By the way, the counsel I am giving will apply to you even if you have been married before with previous sexual experiences. 
This should be a fresh start, and the husband needs to show tender care and concern for his bride, as though it were the first experience for both. Okay, so being previously married is not the only way that people have previous sexual experiences. I think that's obvious. Yeah, but make it work for being fundy. like Right, but make this a fresh start and just be nice to your brand new wife. That's solid advice. That, that's great advice. If you're going to have sex with somebody for the first time, please be nice. Unless they specifically ask you not to. Yeah, there's also a section in here that tells you all about UTIs, you know, uh, which very useful information. That is a thing that people need to know. Yes, very much so. Uh, the one thing I want to talk about is, so the clitoris has its own section, but it's not like a major section. You know, it's just kind of in like they put it in between the section. Like if you're reading this, it would be so easy to skip over the section about the clitoris. Like Like if you're skimming. Yeah. If you're just skimming, you're like, yeah, tell me about that. Like, uh, don't need to know that. Like it's they put it between the section about UTIs and the section about the menstrual cycle. And the section about the clitoris is dominated by a discussion of smegma, which... Yeah, this this section is maybe not ideal. They do kind of redeem themselves later in this book to an extent, but we'll get there. So I'm going, can I, can I do a pull quote from this section right here? Absolutely. Yeah. So it says, sufficient physical stimulation of the clitoris alone will produce orgasm in nearly all women. Okay. For this reason... Many have thought that contact between the penis and the clitoris is the only important factor in achieving orgasm. Many have thought incorrectly. Yes. You had me in the first half. (laughs) Exactly. The thing is, like, it doesn't say this is not true. It It implies that it isn't true, but it doesn't um, go all Jack Hiles on this with, like, this is an untruth. Like, for once, I would actually like to see that phrase. (laughs) No, it goes on to discuss operations which can be done to expose the clitoris, which is like the last thing I want to think. Like, if I'm reading this section, it's like, you can get an operation done to make it more exposed. Like, and I'm like, why would you put that in? Like, that's like half of it. And then the other half is like smegma. And I'm just like, what? I am, yeah, I am so unclear about why this is showing up in an IFB sex book. I'm just, I'm not aware of any reason that this would be relevant to most Americans, mm. much less like IFB or evangelical Christian people. I do not know why the authors felt like this is what needed to be included in this section. There, There's a pretty decent disembodied vagina sketch on the next page, though. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the vagina is just on a, on a, like the surface of a grapefruit. I get the feeling that they thought if they showed thighs or any other hint that this vagina is attached to a person, that it would be way too sexy. So can't have that. This is not a sexy picture. It's a medical like. You are not a repressed IFB man. So you're telling like you're telling me that IFB boy who's looking at this book has like never been sneaky and seen a porno. I don't think that that is particularly common. I think most sneak around to some extent at some point. But I I also strongly feel that there are IFB boys graduating Bible college and getting married every year who have guarded their eyes their whole life and have no clue what a vagina looks like. I guarantee that that exists and happens. I don't think it's like, I don't think it's more than maybe 20, 10 to 20% of people 
at the very highest. But I do think it happens. Regardless, I think that the one takeaway from this section is that the clitoris does not get nearly enough attention in this chapter of the book, considering that the book is titled Intended for Pleasure. So I think that's a fair assessment. I do want to give credit where credit is due for one more actual good quote, and then maybe we can go to break and come back to continue our review of this book. The quote I wanted to pull is, many men make the mistake of blaming any of their wife's mood changes solely on PMS. They make remarks such as, quote, isn't, that, isn't it that time of the month? Derogatory remarks will not reduce the emotional tension. In fact, they will more than likely make more unpleasant the already difficult period. What will help is general kindness and a special sensitivity. This is solid advice. Yeah. Most of this book gives the vibe of having been written by like an 80-year-old grandpa. This part especially does. But also, (laughs) I have to give credit. Yes, if you say, isn't it that time of the month, that is going to piss off your wife. Devaluing her emotions is going to make her mad. Being nice to your wife and trying to be sensitive is a good idea. I wish this wasn't so mind-blowing to the people that this was written for, but it is pretty good advice. Yeah, so of course, if you're IBLP, you'll know exactly when your wife's period is because it will be charted on a big calendar in the kitchen. Ugh, true. (laughs) I feel like the authors here do over, if I can nitpick, I feel like they overstate the extent to which PMS affects most people. This book, the whole book goes a little bit overboard on several things. In this section, it makes it seem like women are on the verge of losing control of their emotions at all times. Some people do have very strong physical and emotional PMS symptoms, but I think this book makes that seem average or that everybody has that experience, which isn't accurate. This is just a pet peeve of mine because I see this stereotype used as reasoning for why women shouldn't be in politics, specifically why women shouldn't be the president. Like that old stupid nugget about, do you want a woman who's on her period to be in charge of the nuclear football? Because I don't. <laughs> And this leaves me because in every other IFB teaching, women are supposed to be responsible for men. Women are supposed to be in complete control of their emotions and be able to project this cool, calm, meek demeanor at all times. Women are supposed to manage the emotions, desires, and thoughts of men around them at all times. But when it comes to leadership, women are somehow the irrational ones. So that was my that was my soapbox. <laughs> I haven't done those again. I haven't done one of those in a minute, and I had I, I couldn't resist. That being said, though, the advice on how to deal if your wife is experiencing PMS is pretty solid. Don't make fun of her. Don't be condescending. Tell her she looks nice. Help her out around the house extra. Try to make her physically and emotionally comfortable. This is good advice. So the next section of the of this chapter is titled The Male Reproductive System, which contains much medical information, including a vivid description of the foreskin and circumcision, as well as several diagrams showing how a vasectomy is performed. Do you think it's the tiniest bit feminist that they did the women's anatomy first? Maybe. Yes. I don't know, because like I think it's just because there's so much more to talk about. You know, it's like comparing, yeah, like a two-stroke motorcycle engine to like a nuclear power plant. Also, I think that like there's some information that they have missing about the male anatomy. I'm very interested to hear what has gone missing here. Okay, so... Because I didn't read this whole section. 
you know how we complained that the clitoris simply doesn't get enough attention? Yes. Well, the section about the prostate is five sentences sandwiched between the section about the testicles and an extensive diagram of a vasectomy being performed. Well, there's a there's a big old section after the vasectomy diagram about prostate cancer and related conditions and treatments. But number one, I noticed that this book fails to mention that an enlarged prostate can cause a man to lose his mind and coerce a teenage girl into sex, which maybe if that was in this book, Jack Scott's excuse would have held up in court better. But number two, I'm guessing that that wasn't what you were hoping to see out of this section. I'm curious. Do you think that the fundies believe that any extra information on what the prostate might do could lead good Christian men down a dangerous path to homosexuality? I am trying to decide if I think that that is the reason the information was left out. Other possibilities that come to mind are maybe they just think that it's unnecessary because it wouldn't lead to pregnancy. Well, if pregnancy was the only concern, then why would they have mentioned the clitoris at all? Because there's a real True. possibility that maybe they just don't know. Surely not, though. Isn't the author, the author's a medical doctor. Yeah. That doesn't seem likely. No, I know. You're probably right about your hypothesis. Uh, you know what? Why don't I tell you why after we take up the offering? How does that sound? Okay, that sounds great. Let's go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back. We are talking about uh, this fundy sex manual called Intended for Pleasure. In the first half of this episode, we talked about the anatomy section. We talked about the need that this publication uh, serves, but now... Like we've done our homework, we've had our dinner, it's time for dessert. Here we are, chapter five, one flesh. 
the techniques of lovemaking. That is two words I hate in one sentence. What? Flesh and lovemaking? No, techniques and of. No. It's it's the how to do the sex, the 90-day information time bomb set to explode. Okay, yeah. So you read this uh, and then suddenly you are a real good sex person and you love to do it all the ways. Uh, <laughs> is that Kenneth? That is Kenneth. I love, um, can I talk about how much I love Kenneth? Kenneth is like every sweet IFB boy. You think Kenneth read this book? Uh, prob- probably, yeah. <laughs> Actually, he never got married, so he wouldn't have. In the intro to this chapter, chapter five, one flesh, the techniques of lovemaking. I want to highlight a paragraph. All right, let's do it. Okay. Um, this is this is reading from this chapter. Detailed how-to books on sex are readily available these days so that a great deal of information is at hand. Unfortunately, these publications are sometimes medically erroneous and often crude and distasteful in presentation. Worst of all, They miss the mark for the Christian reader who realizes that much more than a selfish seeking of physical sensation is involved. The discerning lover approaches the experience knowing that the keenest pleasure comes from the exquisite joy of pleasing the beloved. Okay, we got through the first quote. (laughs) (laughs) So here's my question about that. When they say pleasing the beloved, who are they talking about? I read that as the beloved meaning your spouse. Okay, because I read that as somewhat ambiguous. Like it could be your spouse. It could also mean God and Jesus. But since you grew up fundy, you know how they talk about these things better than I do. You know the terminology better than I do. I could definitely buy that it's a little bit of intentional ambiguity. That does kind of go with the whole point of this book, which is sex between married couples is pleasing to God. So here's a question for you. Is there more or less God and Christianity in this book than you would have would have expected just going into it from this is the IFB sex manual? So I think there's about the expected like when I first read it when you first sent it to me like a year and a half ago and I didn't like hardly know anything about fundyism um and we were just starting out this show and I was like low-key clueless I read it and I was just like kind of laughing at how much God and Jesus there was but like now that I'm looking at it again after having been doing this show for a year and a half and really been immersed in this stuff it it's about what I would have expected it to be because what they've been telling these kids their whole lives don't do the sex sex is a sin don't do it and so you've got to fill your sex manual with scripture verses in order to break that down or they're not going to be able to do it without like extreme shame which still might occur even with all of the Bible verses anyway. I I think that's an excellent point. And I can tell you for sure from many, many stories that I've heard that the extreme shame really does stick around. And that is really difficult for people to overcome. Even me, like I didn't get married in the IFB, but I definitely experienced having a lot of hangups that just had to had to be worked through. I think that this is one of the big damages, I think, from purity culture is people 
grow up and get married and their whole life it's been don't think about sex don't have sex don't dress in a sexual way don't know anything about it if you can help it and then they're supposed to just flip the switch on their wedding day and that's really not psychologically possible and that really messes with people long term also though this is just kind of the way that fundies write because if you go back to the abeka book a paragraph will just randomly start with something like god created several different types of rocks sedimentary igneous and metamorphic after the flood, sediment settled into sedimentary rocks. Some common types of sedimentary rocks are, and I'm just making that up off the top of my head, but I guarantee there's something like that in an Abeka science book. I just feel like the complete obsession with God and including God and spirituality and everything would almost be quaint and sweet. It almost seems nice from the outside, but then you realize that it's used to mask so many terrible ideas and so much abuse. It's really tricky because you want to think, oh, these people are just really about praising God. Like, is that so bad if these weirdos want to have hot sex with their wife for Jesus? But you have to think about, while this book is fairly low on the offensiveness scale for a fundy book, that concept that they are using in this book is used in this book and many, many other places to a much greater extent to make terrible things seem okay and seem quaint and sweet. So in this section, I will give them credit because they are picking like appropriate Bible verses. Like there's one second where they're like, here's some good ideas for foreplay is you guys should try to shower together and then see what happens there. And then they give you a verse from like Song of Songs. So that like that felt like that's appropriate to put like. Yeah, it's it's definitely an appropriate Bible verse. I feel like if this was Bill Gothard he would be putting in very v vague Bible verses with just whatever he thought sounded sexy and it would be something from Ezekiel or something. <laughs> but, but this book actually has Bible verses that fit the topic, which is which is nice. They told you don't read Song of Songs until you're like... I, I think that I was allowed to read through it on the yearly buzz through the Bible program, which is not what they called it. That's just what I call it, where you force yourself to read three chapters a day every day so that you make it through the whole Bible in a year. Hmm. I think I was not discouraged. I wasn't told to skip over Song of Solomon. I was just told to like read it real quick and don't pay a lot of attention to it. It's It's spicy. It's a spicy chapter. Yeah, but you're not supposed to read it and actually pay attention to it until you are at least marriage age. In this section, in this section of the book, in chapter five, did anything stand out to you as particularly wild or weird or inaccurate? There's one thing from this section that I feel like we just cannot move on without talking about. What's that? This is probably the funniest quote from this book, in my opinion. God. The male behind position is seldom used, but may be tried on occasion. <laughs> I don't know why, but may be tried on occasion just kills me. I don't even specifically know why. I think it's because may be tried and on occasion just sound so judgy. Yes. No, maybe try to like what occasion are they talking like every other Tuesday, minor federal like flag day? You can well, do it on flag day. <laughs> well, the occasion which the book specifies is late in pregnancy, which, yes, helpful. Thank you. But maybe tried. It has the vibe of, well, you know, most people don't do this and you probably won't like it. But I guess Jesus won't be too mad if you give it a shot. The thing is, though, that like if you look at the the way that they describe it um 
they make it clear they're not talking about doggy style. They're talking about spooning here. Okay. They're like, they make it clear that they are, they're like, there are serious disadvantages to this position. Right. Cause they have like the advantages and dis like, they're like, right. there are serious disadvantages to this position. Because in case you need us, in case you need a flow chart to pick out your sex position for the evening. <laughs> Yeah. Like the penis does not contact the clitoris. That's one of their major uh, serious disadvantage. disadvantage. And the second one is that the couple cannot kiss during intercourse. So (laughs) I just like I know that I am one of those people like I make a lot of lists, but I've never this is a list I've never felt called to make advantages and disadvantages and what they what they recommend as an alternative is this like very complicated like sideways like sideline facing each other position that i feel like is more advanced yeah i mean maybe they like had a copy of the kama sutra well you know jill duggar had a christianized kama sutra where they had taken out all the like you know eastern mysticism out of it what is it just like i don't know what's in it i did not by the Christianized Kama Sutra. <laughs> That's what... when Jill Duggar shilled it on her Instagram. <laughs> well, Jill Dillard, but if anybody ha- ha- like has a copy of that lying around, please send it to us. <laughs> yeah, Jill has shilled sex stuff, I think, more than once. Yeah. And there was definitely a morbid curiosity of like, should I buy that and like see what it's about? And then just like, no, I only have so much money. Well, the the thing with this book is that. They only describe three sexual positions. Yes. Quote from the book. We have described the basic positions here. As opposed to, yeah, like you said, the advanced positions. I don't know why we aren't being given levels. Like this is a level one difficulty. This is a level three. I I feel like that would have been more helpful (laughs) than the flow chart of advantages and disadvantages. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I am ready to cringe my way out of this chapter. Just, just get on oh, to something I'm not, else. Oh, I'm uh, not ready. To, I'm not ready. I'm to so go surprised. Yet. There's, there's still more stuff I got to talk about. Um, there, there's a few more quotes that, like, pull quotes. Can I read one of them to you? Yeah, yeah, go for it. The female above position gives the husband access to her breasts. <laughs> yep. I mean accurate but also i think it's like it's so funny and on brand for this book because at the same time it's like overly flowery and poetic but also really clinical in a way that is not sexy at all I'm, i'm totally with you there it's a weird mix of very poetic and very sterile and i feel like that's because the ifb people think that sex without love and marriage is a sin obviously but also they're doing their best to write this book in a way that doesn't turn people on too much or make them think about anyone other than their spouse. Like they got to hit the sweet, like you were talking about with writing awkward questions for your sex ed teacher. They got to hit the sweet spot between like this book makes me horny for my spouse, but not for anybody else. It's also just like, of course, like they they can't use the colloquial names for the position. Like they're not going to say doggy style in this uh, in, in this book at all. No. But yeah, the, like, this, that's definitely not the vibe of this piece of work. Like they can't say like cowgirl or reverse cowgirl, but they like they also can't even say girl on top. They got to say female above. Which I don't is, know why they didn't. 
go like go all the way and just say wife above because it's wife in every other sentence. I don't know. Wife on top. That would have been fine. That would have been. That would have been. That would have been totally fine. I completely agree. Above is like, <laughs> like I, I'm thinking of like an angel floating in through the 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 window. <laughs> that is exactly the vibe that I got as well. So I'm glad we're on the same page with I'm that. Picturing somebody suspended from the ceiling like a marionette. Uh, I feel like that's a little too kinky for for this book. <laughs> Just like it's it, it's so prudish that it's accidentally kinky. <laughs> Horseshoe that, theory. <laughs> that's the quote that I want for like the episode when we post about our episode on social. It's so prudish that it's accidentally kinky. That's the yeah. that's the quote that I want. Yeah. So, do you think it's a deliberate choice not to use colloquial names, or do oh, you yeah. think the authors don't know the colloquial names, or is it possible that the authors are avoiding the colloquial names because they think the Christians they are writing the book for won't know them? Here's another theory. Maybe they don't like cowgirls because they've got to wear pants to ride horses and wrangle cattle and women wearing pants would be improper. And being a cowboy, that's a man's job. Being a cowgirl, that's... <laughs> She's going against her God honoring uh, gender roles. Yes. I don't know. You really? don't think that you don't think that cow wrangling could be done in culottes? How durable are culottes? You can make them out of denim or even canvas if you wanted, I guess. Like some styles could be made from real heavy duty material. I I think that denim culottes, Sadie, don't hate me for this. I think that denim culottes are just Janko jeans, but with extra steps. Okay, Janko jeans, but with <laughs> pleats at the hips. So they're loose all the way down, not just at like the hem. And they are also, much like Jenko jeans, absolutely <laughs> ideal for learning to swim in. If you wear Jenko jeans in the pool, you will drown. This is a fact. Tell that to all of us, including me, who learned how to swim in denim culottes. I'm sorry. How? How? That sounds so, like, <laughs> soggy denim? Like, how? why would you wear denim in the pool? If those That's... are your old culottes, because you've got to cover up in the pool. Even though there are no boys in the pool, you still got to be modest. So you just wear like your oldest pair of culottes that are maybe like an inch too short to wear out in public, but you can wear them in the pool. And if they happen to be denim, that's what you're going to be wearing in the pool. So I do want to mention that there is a very nice chapter in this book on what the book calls the pre-orgasmic wife. Most of the stuff in this chapter honestly seems pretty hopeful. Okay. Well, do you want to read some of it? Yeah, I definitely do. It's um, it's encouraging women who are having problems getting to an orgasm not to look at themselves as broken or like something's wrong with them, just that they haven't gotten there yet, which is probably the healthiest thing in this book. I think that's great. There was one thing, though, that I felt was highly suspect and a bit funny from that chapter. So here's the quote. Oh, God. Pelvic congestion is one of the most common causes of low back pain and pelvic pain and tenderness. I'm skipping down a bit. Each time the stimulated wife fails to reach orgasm, this represents some injury to the pelvic organs and to her emotions, often leaving her with nervousness, weakness, fatigue, and moderate to severe pelvic pain and low back pain, which may become chronic. Wow. I didn't know that. Like, I get that it's frustrating when you can't just get there. I'm not debating that. But isn't this just blue balls? Aren't the authors just blaming back pain, nervousness, and fatigue on female blue balls? I don't know, blue ovaries? Blue tubes. This seems suspect to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'd, like, the most common? 
one of the most common causes of low back pain is uh, that's like that's a lot and also that it'll make you nervous and anxious guess i mean that that just seems like a lot of course if you're a man and you're married to a woman in the ifb you would never know if she is suffering from what do we call it blue balls blue tubes blue ovaries blue whatever you would never know that she is suffering from uh such an indigo condition (laughs) because that would be the spirit of complaining and the spirit of complaining is not is not of god that's unfortunately true (laughs) So as far as I know, this phenomenon is a real thing that some AFAB people experience, but it's really, really uncommon. That's my best knowledge without looking it up. I've definitely never heard chronic back pain or nervousness blamed on this. This is just a bit bizarre to me. I feel like this book over and over and over again explains uncommon conditions Which on one hand, it's great because some young person with no sex education outside this book needs to know that if they have one of these conditions that they're not alone and that it can be fixed. But the book just has the side effect of way overstating the likelihood of ever experiencing these conditions. You know what this this is like? What? Like in school, they taught you stop, drop, and roll, and you thought that you'd be on fire at least a few times as an adult because they taught you stop, drop, and roll all the time in school. They had to practice it. But most of us have never had to stop, drop, and roll. This book is like that. It gives you way too much information about stuff that isn't particularly likely to ever happen to you, especially since it's written for people who intend to only have sex with one person in their lifetime. Well, it's better. I guess it's better to have the information than to not have it, of course. But like, yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's better to know how to stop, drop, and roll, right? Like for like the one in a hundred of us that end up on fire at some point. I don't know. Maybe this is just like f- like flatter husbands to say my wife has never had this issue. It must be c- because I am a sex god, or it could be to be like, look, guys, you better put the work in and make this happen. Mm. For, like, or she's gonna have serious issues later. You know, I could see it more as the second one. That that makes some sense. I got, I did get the message though, which was an overall good message of if you're the wife in this situation. Don't blame yourself. Don't blame your husband. This is something you can work through together, which in general, I think is a pretty healthy message. This is something that's inconsistent with something that we're going to talk about much later in the episode, I think. But yeah, you know, as for as prudish and as clinical as this manual, uh, as this manual is, there is a lot of messaging in here that like isn't the worst, that isn't terrible. And, you know, at least they're telling you, you know, go in. At least, I mean, at least they're not advocating for soaking. At least they're... Or accidentally inventing it. (laughs) Of course not, though, because this is married couples and they want to make sure that the married couples can make lots of babies for Jesus. Speaking of, I was curious whether there is a birth control section in this book. So There is a section of this book titled Planning and Achieving Parenthood in which the first sentence is, every baby born should be considered a gift from God. Of course, I am totally opposed to abortion unless the life of the mother is threatened. So once again, they're like giving their their fundy credentials. Like, you can trust me on this because I don't like abortion. Yeah, this is, to me, this rang in the same sort of way as putting three chapters of Bible verses before any medical information. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. It's like they have to give their anti-abortion like shibboleth before people will listen to what they have to say about anything else. 
So what I'm getting from this book is that if you're going to talk about like any sort of like risque or sinful subject, you have to pre-qualify it with a bunch of justifications. So instead of just coming out and saying what you want to say and saying what you mean, there's just like three or four pages of abortion is bad. God wants you to have children. And then it goes in. If you have unprotected sex for a year, there's an 80% chance you'll get to you'll get pregnant, blah, 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 blah. These are the birth control options for you if you decide to postpone your starting of the family. Notice they say postpone. I have really mixed feelings about this chapter because on one hand, yeah, the book says that having children isn't like it doesn't make it out to be optional. It's like there's all this qualification of like this is something you're obviously going to do eventually. But then the book gets it totally right about the pill, the pill doesn't cause abortions. It delays ovulation so that conception never happens, which is correct. But then after that, it goes right back the other way and propagates the myth that some people regularly use mifeprex, which is, I believe, the, like what they used in the 70s when this book was written and now it's mifeprestone, which is one of the two drugs used in most pill abortions as birth control. So he's saying that people, he's implying at least, if not flat out saying, that people just get pregnant willy-nilly and then have abortions, which, as discussed, is very rare and not something that anyone with a right mind and access to proper birth control, whatever do. This is like especially bad because the guy writing this is an MD. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the people reading this, like we said before, the fundies don't actually know how birth control works. Like a lot of them think birth control and abortion are the same thing. They think that worldly people are just out here hooking up with randos every day. And then once a month, they stop into Planned Parenthood to get like whatever rando baby just vacuumed out of you. Yeah. And that's we know that's completely inaccurate. So the author of this book is in like informed enough and educated enough to correctly describe what birth control does, which is something that a lot of fundies get wrong. And it debunks so many other myths, too, in a good way, like debunking myths about the hymen and myths about female pleasure and myths about how birth control functions. That's super great. But it always goes back to making so many excuses, so many qualifications and perpetuating misinformation or perpetuating things that are really toxic, like this myth that people just go get pregnant and think, oh, I'll just have an abortion. Speaking of propagating things that are very toxic, I want to read you this quote that I found from chapter 10. Chapter 10 is called The Perfect Wife, and perfect is in quotes. The chapter starts off good, talking about how we know we're not perfect, and our husbands know this too, that to serve your husband, you don't have to be subservient. It doesn't mean completely letting go of who you are. It just means thinking of him and prioritizing him over the distractions of life. It talks about overcoming body insecurity. Like, this is all good. Yeah. It, it's super Christian, but for what it is, this is fine, even good. So where does it get toxic? Well, you get halfway through this chapter of pretty good advice, and then you end up with things like this quote. Sometimes you will be very tired and feeling as sexy as an old sock, but your husband will approach you with desire. Secular therapists say... A wife should be able to respond, sorry, but I'm just not up to it tonight. My own opinion as a Christian wife is that we can depend on the Lord to give us the strength and ability to be as warm and responsive as our husband desires, no matter how tired we are. And that's the end of the quote. Uh, this is just a really nicely stated, dressed up with a bow on it version of never tell your husband no and your desire does not matter. And this section was written by... Uh, by gay wheat, the, uh, Ed yeah, the wife. wife. Yeah, the wife. You just like treat it like a chore. 
You know, is it like a lie on your back and think of England situation or? It's not even that. You have to force yourself to either get into it or act like you're into it. You can't even just like lay there and take it. You have to you have to perform being super into it, whether that's realistic or not. Wow. It's like it's like a fake it till you make it thing. It's like, oh, well, if you get into this, you'll start enjoying it. And it, it, it's not like, okay, it's like um, people, I, I see people applying this to exercise a lot. Like if you don't feel like working out today, maybe try going for a brisk walk and see if that gets your endorphins up and then you want to do it. Yeah. So this isn't a completely invalid concept, but I feel like where sexual consent is involved, it is not valid. Speaking of fake it till you make it, do they also tell you to fake your orgasms to flatter his ego? Because that's like in line with this. It is. And strangely, that doesn't get a mention here. I think the implication is that if your husband has read the rest of this book, he is just going to be able to get you there every time. Uh, But that just that doesn't ring true for me. Like if the wife in this situation is really, really tired or honestly feeling sick, I don't know if that's accurate. And there's no guidance on what to do in that situation. That is absolutely inaccurate for a reason that we will discuss in a few minutes. So before we get to that, I wanted to read another quote from the same chapter because I found in writing exactly what I was discussing in last week's episode. So here's that quote. If he prefers to stay up late at night, try to squeeze in an afternoon nap and stay up late with him. If he enjoys baseball, learn to like it. You don't do these things because you are a doormat, but because you want to enjoy his world with him. Most important, a wise wife will not argue. She will keep her husband peaceful and satisfied and happy by gracefully conceding to his wishes or deferring to his opinions. When the issue is an important one, it can be discussed and decided on its merits. Yeah, so that that's pretty much exactly what you were saying last week. It is. And like I've said my piece on that, but I always feel a bit vindicated when I find something in writing that exactly matches my memory. I think that's a huge thing for a lot of us, actually, because trauma brain and PTSD brain can lead us to doubt ourselves. And it's really nice to have proof, either proof that we find in writing or in other people's stories. I think that's really validating to a lot of people like me. So I did want to throw that quote in there. You know, I think this is really two-faced because on one hand, right, you have the section of the book saying, focus on your wife's pleasure because it will help your intimacy. And then you have, on the other hand, the book says, even if you don't want to do it anyway, and you can't ever have an opinion that's different for like, if you're unsatisfied, how are you ever going to bring that up? with him that like you're unsatisfied. Yeah, this is exactly what I'm getting at. The other thing I wanted to point out is that this is the wife telling other women that. And this is a really good point, I think, about how women become the oppressors of other women when they are in this type of situation, how women at the top contribute to oppressing women further down the food chain. Because the thing is about this book, though, if you took any individual page There are over 400 pages. If you randomly pulled one page, probably 350 of them would seem super progressive as far as IFB gender roles and IFB teaching goes. That's almost a 90% chance that if you pulled one single page from this 400-page book, you'd get one of the ones that appear to be very progressive. But hidden deep in there, there are bits and pieces of just the same old, tired, toxic, misogynistic nonsense. That's kind of the best we can hope for. Like, that's the best we can expect. Like, inconsistency, not terrible all the time, but terrible some of the time. Like, you're right. As far as an IFB or even just IFB approved book goes, the fact that some of it is pretty good advice is really a step above. I, I think it's just disappointing, though, because this book 
to me, seems like it was written by reasonable, educated people. And I have to think that they were probably capable of taking one step further beyond some of these views. And for whatever reason, they were willing to take their beliefs almost all the way to being actually progressive. And then for whatever reason, they didn't. So I have a possible take on this. Tell me if I'm right or wrong or if I'm... Okay, I would love your take. If I were given this book 90 days before my wedding, say I'm a young man and I'm in the IFB and I am engaged, my wedding is in three months, I'm given this book. I don't think I'm going to read it cover to cover because it's like 350 pages. I'm not going to take every piece of information equally. I think I'm going to skip to the parts with new information. I'm going to go to where the action is. So I'm going to go to the part where I can see pictures, diagrams, description of the actual sexual acts that I am going to be engaging in, like the parts where they describe techniques, the arousal, like the positions. That's what I'm going to read. That's what I'm going to reread. And all the parts about like in a Christian marriage, the husband weeds is like blah, 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 blah. Like I just skim over that because I'd heard it like a thousand times. Like, does that sound accurate to you? I like, I don't know. Like a lot of my take, cause I wasn't raised in fundamentalism, so I can't really get inside the funny mindset. And I haven't had all those years of conditioning. Is that like, actually, I think you're totally on point with that. Really? I think, yeah, I think a lot of fundy people and specifically men would do exactly that. Just skim over the parts they've heard a bunch already and get to the good stuff. So maybe all like this Christian teaching on marriage, like all that stuff, that's just like set dressing. It's like a way to Trojan horse some actual medical information into these people's lives. I could see that being the case if it weren't for the two quotes that I read a few minutes ago. Because most of the other Christian stuff that I came across in this book is just very standard, run-of-the-mill Christianese complementarianism jargon. But those two parts really stood out to me. I think if the authors of this book were just being Christian as an excuse to spread their mostly accurate medical information, they wouldn't have needed to go so far as to put those parts in, especially the part of have sex even if you don't want to. Like if it were a Trojan horse, I don't think they would have wanted to include that part. That's a good point. So my wrap-up take is that if you were going to be given little to no sex education and then handed a Christian sex manual, this is probably your absolute best option. It's going to reinforce beliefs that I don't personally like or support, but the medical and anatomical information is almost completely correct. So that's great. I also wanted to point out that, though, that this book famously was given to Josh Duggar before he got married, along with Jim Bob's famous Lego speech. And clearly, Josh Duggar wasn't faithful to his wife. We don't know if he treated her kindly the way that this book prescribes or if he was abusive to her, but there's every clue and every red flag to make it make us think that it's more likely that he did not treat her well and kindly. I think the implication with this book is that if you follow it, you will have a happy marriage. On one hand, I think if someone read this book, including all the parts we left out about communication and not holding on to resentment and that kind of basic marriage advice that just, you know, didn't fit into our hour, hour and a half program, I think that someone who really took this book to heart could have a pretty good marriage. There would still be the specter hanging over the marriage of never having complete equality between a male and a female partner. There would still be low-key and sometimes high-key homophobia hanging over the entire relationship. But if you are already a person who believes in those things, this isn't terrible marriage advice. I think what is terrible is the fundy idea that following the rules will make everything work out. 
because Jim Bob Duggar had a son who was already a multiple time abuser and married him off to a young, incredibly naive woman. And apparently he thought in his big dumb head, oh, I gave him this book and he will follow this book and it will all be okay. So my take is this book is weirdly half good, half toxic. But my far larger concern is the way that this points to the fundy concept of if you do it our way, everything will be perfect. Because I think that concept has hurt more people than any piece of advice that I don't like from this book. Before we wrap up this episode, there's something that I've been talking about a little bit. One more thing I want to say. I, like when I was talking before about how they're like, if you don't give your wife an orgasm, then like she'll have back pain for her whole life. Mm-hmm. So out of curiosity, I searched this whole PDF because we have a PDF version for several keywords that I was unable to find any mention of. These keywords were oral, mouth, tongue, and lick. Mm -hmm. Very little, if any, mention of those four keywords popping up in this 350 to 400 page uh, manual on how to do the sex. Yeah. Because when when I looked it up, all I could find is uh, oral contraceptives. That's what I like. I I searched this book for it. That's all that popped up was oral contraceptives. I found one mention of oral sex in this book. Would you like me to? Yeah, I found one. One mention. Would you like me to read it to you? It's actually pretty fun. Yeah. Okay. So I found one mention in the Q&A section all the way at the end of the book. And this is a longer quote, but I think it's I think it's worth the read. They really hid that one like way. Yeah, they hid that one deeper than they did. The wife doesn't have to really consent part which I think says something. So the question is, do you discuss oral stimulation with couples? Do you find any objection, spiritual or otherwise, to married couples demonstrating love for each other in this manner? And here's the answer from Dr. Wheat. It has come to my attention on many occasions that couples early in their marriage have been unable to achieve sufficient stimulation for the young wife during sexual intercourse. Very often, this is because the husband has been unable to sufficiently control the timing of his ejaculation. As a solution, they turn to oral genital sex to bring her to orgasm, and this becomes, in a sense, a shortcut, avoiding the development of the discipline and skillful control that are demanded in learning how to consistently provide a maximum of physical pleasure for both through regular intercourse. It is difficult for this couple to imagine that they are now shortchanging themselves because because they may both be consistently reaching sexual climax, although without experiencing the unity and oneness that God has designed for their human bodies in basic sexual intercourse. I do not believe that God would have designed so many intricate details of the sexual anatomy to encourage husbands and wives to learn together the skills of bringing each other to fulfillment if he had not intended those to be used the greater part of the time. Also... I'm sorry. The kicker, the the end quote on this is so funny. Also, oral genital sex definitely limits the amount of loving verbal communication that husband and wife can have as they make love. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm I'm dying. I am. I am also dying. Imagine this, that last paragraph of this book is in a book that is titled Intended for Pleasure. And I want to like say, I think the focus should be on the word intended, because as we all know, the intent is not always the result, but this is absurd. (laughs) I I, I have to say, 
I have heard a lot of fundy, uh, fundy objections to oral sex, but it's cheating the system and you can't talk to each other during really takes the cake. That is a totally new one for me. Like, what do they expect you to be talking about? Like, saying uh earlier in the book it's like uh complimenting each other sharing goals and dreams there's a list of stuff to talk about during sex and after sex earlier in this book but i'm not going back to it at this point that pot roast you made earlier was really good i'm still thinking about it (laughs) while i bust my nut (laughs) (laughs) i just like i've heard a lot of fundies like oh that's what that's what queer people do so that's not okay to do or like uh there's pulling out some levitical law that makes it that's that can be interpreted to be against oral or like uh it doesn't make babies so that's a bad thing to do but cheating the system like shortchanging yourself that's a new one that's just that's just a new one to me you know, like i expected them to have something you know like i expected them to have it listed like as like you know, an appetizer, like a side dish. Like you can do, it's not the main course, but you try it if you want. Is that so weird? Or, or It's not even on the menu. It's so weird. This whole ass book about finding pleasure in your Christian marriage. Like, don't believe the lies. Women are meant to feel pleasure and have orgasms. It's the Christian husband's responsibility to please his wife, but don't go down on her. It's such a weird ending to such a weird book. Like this book, it's like it's like progressive in so many ways, but it was also written in 1899 in so many ways. If you make your wife come from oral sex, then you are defrauding her. I don't. That, you heard it here first. A, that is a crazy take from my guy Ed Wheat. I just want to say, uh, pour one out for our girl Gay Wheat. Uh, yeah, I know. She, no kidding. She's missing out. (laughs) But the whole instead, why don't you just try to like pound it out for two or three hours until she get like, (laughs) that's the alternative. That's the alter. Like this is an, I have not heard this one before. Like, do, uh, do you remember a few months ago, Sadie, when we were planning out episodes and you asked me if the Valentine's Day sex manual episode was going to be episode number 69. Right. And we barely missed it. I think episode 69 was like two weeks ago. Yeah. I think this one's like episode 72. Um, it was close. Anyway, I personally think I think it was good that this wasn't episode number 69 because according to this book, 69 is strongly discouraged. Apparently. <laughs> Well, I think that is the wildest possible note on which to end our discussion of this book. This is this is just uh, God. This entire thing has just been like, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, all right, yeah, that's good advice. What? What? No. Why? (laughs) Just over and over again. It's an emotional roller coaster. Well, you know what they say: a broken clock is right twice a day. But yeah, but this one is right like half the time. It's a broken time warp clock or something. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's it. That, that we're 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 done. We got to finish this one up. Um, I was gonna say yeah, we're was- not gonna be able to top that one, and then I realized that at this point in the ex- episode, anything I say is gonna sound like an innuendo. So I'm just gonna stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so if you like this show, if you are a fan of this show, uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast, Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. You can join our Facebook group and discuss this episode with all of the other fans of the show, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. Uh, you can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. You can, yeah, Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Oh, yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music. You can follow me on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie. And you can follow me on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Until next time. Oh, yeah. Tune in if you're a patron. Uh, if it's not up right now, then it'll be up in the next couple of days. There's a special Patreon episode for Valentine's Day where we were review the fundy sex playlist that should be fun enjoy that uh until then you guys have a great day bye bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.